Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. I wanted to start this morning by talking a little bit strangely about where I live. Uh, My family lives in the Cranbrook neighborhood, which is close enough here to the 4-H building that technically my family could walk to church. Um, Now that has never happened. (laughs) Um, That's purely an aspirational idea at this point. Um, It's hard enough to get to church by car, even though we technically could walk here. Um, But that's how close that we live to church. And we're just actually a stone's throw from Upper Arlington. And living in the neighborhood, it was always interesting to see uh, some of the amenities that folks have in Upper Arlington, things like recycling. When we first moved into the Cranbrook neighborhood, Columbus City did not yet have a recycling system. Um, And so if you wanted to recycle, you had to be very, very proactive. Um, We became more conscious of this and wanted to be proactive about recycling when we first moved in. And so to do it, you actually had to store up all of your recycling and then throw it into the back of your vehicle and drive it. We had to drive it to our local elementary school where there was a recycling dumpster and we had to put the recycling in there. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that hard. It's not suffering to have to do that. But I will say that we got a, when we got a, a letter a few years ago in the mail from the city of Columbus that they were going to uh, actually put recycling bins at every home and that they would come by to the house and pick up the recycling. For someone who cares about the environment and my convenience, this was really good news. Um, and even in the last year or so, they sent another letter in the mail saying, uh, they're going to come every week. They were getting it bi-weekly. Now, they're, now it's coming every single week. Uh, and so for me, it has been a great feeling to be able to kind of roll out my recycling to the curb and to feel good that I'm not uh, adding unnecessary waste to the landfills. Um, although I will say that I don't always remember to put the recycling out of the curb. And then I feel... I feel like for some reason putting out recycling on the day that it's supposed to be picked up is sort of a test of adulthood, right? And the days I forget, of course, I I tend to feel shame that, like, of all the things you're supposed to be able to do as an adult, like, putting recycling out on the right day just feels like a baseline. So I have to be gracious with myself. But um, anyway, it's it when I roll that bin out to the street, over the years that has felt good to be able to say, okay, this waste is being recycled. It's not going into a landfill. But I will say also that um, that good, those good feelings of recycling were interrupted when I saw the following article. Now, in this article, it basically said that even though you may think the plastics in your recycling are uh, being recycled, sadly, sometimes they end up um, actually going to a landfill or even worse, the ocean. (laughs) 
And I'm bringing this up not because I am an expert on recycling in Columbus. I don't know what happens to the recycling. This isn't a, a moral or political statement about recycling. My point in bringing this up is this. That now when I roll the recycling out to the street, I don't feel as good about it as I used to. There is some ambiguity. There's some questions. Like, what is actually happening with this? Where, where I would almost say that, like, ignorance was bliss. But now that I know, there's some ambiguity about how should I feel about rolling this recycling out to the street? And so what I want to say is this, that I want to have a clear conscience. I want to have a clear conscience and related to my recycling. And that's been strangely difficult to achieve recently. Um, but what I would say also is that um, I think this desire to have a clear conscience is um, true of all of us. That that's part of what it means to be human, actually, is to desire to have a clear conscience. And when we talk about having a clear conscience, I think it's important to take a moment and try to understand what exactly that means. And so we have this quote from theologian and ethicist E.D. Cook, which describes what actually is a conscience. All right. So he says, a conscience has been variously understood as an inner moral sense of right and wrong, the voice of God within, or the mind of human beings making moral judgments. Mankind, as distinct from the animals, has the capacity to distinguish right from wrong. This involves the mind, and notice this, it involves the emotions and the will. So there's a lot that goes into our conscience. The conscious acts as both a, a judge and a guide. So this is a pretty technical definition of what it means that we as human beings have a conscience. All of us, as we are born, as we are made alive by God, created by Him, we are given this conscience. And many have said this is part of what distinguishes us from the rest of all of creation. But to elaborate even on what it means to have a conscience, he says, conscience is both retrospective and prospective. It judges actions done or omitted and brings feelings of guilt and the awareness of the need for repentance. It guides and directs before we act so that we may act properly in good conscience. And so our conscience is both retrospective and prospective. Our conscience allows us to look back on our lives and to feel feelings of guilt about things that we did that we shouldn't have done or things that we ought to have done that we didn't do. But it also is a guide. It is prospective. As we think about living our lives into the future, it serves very helpfully, actually, as a guide for how God would want us to live in His world. So this is what a conscience is, right? Um, but what does it mean to have a clean conscience, a clear conscience? Well, what I would argue is this, that to have a clear conscience, another way to think about this, is that we would live our lives in such a way where we experience freedom 
from guilt. And because we're talking about guilt, we have to talk about shame. That to have a clear conscience means that we would have a free sense of not experiencing the pain of guilt, not experiencing the pain of shame. And I want to uh, share for a moment a, a brief description of guilt and shame from Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson. He says, guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I perceive that I am bad. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. It's about my outward actions. Shame is something that I feel because I perceive something about myself. That I'm so deeply flawed that my flaws define my existence. That's toxic shame. And this all raises the question for us. If to have a clear conscience means that we are free from guilt and shame, how do we pursue a clear conscience? How do we experience this? Because if the burden is on us to be perfect, to never do anything wrong, to not have any flaws whatsoever, we are in trouble. If that's the only way to have a clear conscience, it does not take a lot of thought to realize that that's not going to work. We are not perfect. We don't have it together. And so what the author of Hebrews is talking about this morning is this exact question. How do we pursue and achieve a clear conscience in light of the fact that we are broken and live in a broken world? So before we take a look at Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, let me take a quick moment to pray. God... I pray that you would give me words to speak by your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Spirit would be at work in this time. Would the words that are shared be used for your redemptive purposes in our lives? And if there's anything I would say, God, that is not of you, I pray those words would be soon forgotten and washed away. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so we'll be looking at the first ten verses of chapter nine of Hebrews this morning. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which we were the lampstand, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides of gold, in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we, can now, we cannot now speak in detail. And many of us might say this is quite a lot of detail already, but let's <laughs> continue on. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the priest goes, 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the preservation. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the day of reformation. You see, what these ten verses in chapter 9 of Hebrews is all about is about these words, having a clear conscience, perfected conscience. And in fact, we can look at um, the second quote here. There's a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson from the message. He says in verse 9, Under this system... The gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter. Can't assuage the conscience of the people. See, this desire, this human desire to have a clear conscience is not just something that we experience in our context today, but it is something that on the other side of the world, thousands of years ago, people were wrestling with. How do I have a clear conscience? How do I experience freedom from guilt and shame. And the author of Hebrews is wanting to address this in their lives. Now, the first half of these verses, uh, verses 1 through 5, where the author says, I can't go into too much detail here. Now, it may, it, those descriptions of the system of sacrifice that God had given ancient Israel, it may seem technical, and it may seem kind of irrelevant. As the author gives sort of a laundry list of how the tabernacle was set up and the different uh, pieces of the tabernacle and how the priest was supposed to operate in the tabernacle, it can seem so foreign. It can seem so distant from us that it almost seems irrelevant. But what I want to say to, this, say to you this morning is that for ancient Israel, it was not irrelevant. Each one of those pieces had a significant meaning to it. I mean, the tabernacle was the place where in a special way, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, was, was present with his people. And so a description of the tabernacle represented, this is how I can be in God's presence. And when, we, when it talks about um, the Ark of the Covenant and all of the different elements that were a part of the Ark of the Covenant, this reminded them of their story, that they were slaves in Egypt. But that God heard their cries. He heard their suffering. And he came and he rescued them out of Egypt. And that he gave them not just the law, but he gave them this sacrificial system so they, they knew how to be right with God. And so the author of Hebrews is not saying that this is bad. He's not saying there's something that's really bad or really wrong with this system that the people of God had, he's just saying that it's not complete. It's not the ideal. What he's arguing in this passage is that, yes, this is good, but if you think about it this way, every time that your conscience convicts you of a new sin, you need the sacrificial system yet again. And so as good as it is, at least for me when I hear this, it sounds exhausting. 
sounds exhausting. Over and over again, these sacrifices are needed. And so, what is interesting about this passage is the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, as good as it is, it's actually pointing to something else. It's pointing to something else. And what it's pointing to, of course, as we know, to give you a little heads up about where Joe will likely go next week as we look at the second half of chapter 9, it's pointing to Jesus. At this point in Hebrews, that should be no surprise to you. It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the great high priest. It's pointing to the Lamb. It's pointing to the once and for all sacrifice that provides a way for our consciences to be washed clean, for us to know that we can be made right with God. (coughs) So do we need to be morally perfect in order to have a clear conscience? That's not going to happen But the writer of Hebrews Hebrews wants all of us to know that yes, we can have a clear conscience. And it's by trusting in Jesus as the one who washes us clean. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're not even sure if you believe in God. Maybe you recognize that you want to have a clear conscience, but you're not exactly sure what Jesus has to do with having a clear conscience if you're not sure that God even exists, that would be a fair question to ask this morning. Well, what I would want to say is that a biblical understanding of having a conscience is that the way our conscience functions, it actually functions socially. Our conscience functions interpersonally. We were created to be in relationship. And so... Our conscience is not meant to function as though there is a moral law that exists in some vacuum. And that it's all just about me within myself feeling okay that I have not broken my conscience. God designed us to have a sense that our our right and wrong impacts somebody else, somebody out there. And of course we understand from scripture that as much as our conscience points us to ways we might do harm against others, it also points us to ways that we harm God. We fall short of of God's standard. So, how do I have a clear conscience with my wife, Elizabeth? Um, Let me say that I am not perfect, that I fail to love her frequently, sadly. Uh, I need to be honest about that. There are times when I can be selfish. I can be more focused on my desires and what I want. And not sufficiently focused on how my behavior or lack of behavior might affect her. And so, how do I have a clear conscience with my wife? Well, it's not just that I say within myself, Oh, I have failed to love my wife. I should admit that and confess it. No, I go to her and I say, hey, what I, what I have done was wrong, I'm sorry. Or what I haven't done was wrong, I'm sorry. And all of that is for the purpose, not just of um, reconciling justice or guilt as though it's a math problem to be solved, But it's for restoration of relationship. 
what my conscience wants is not just to feel that I haven't done something wrong. It's that I want to feel like our relationship is restored. And so that's why I go to him and admit wrongdoing. And the way that God designed us to have a conscience, he wants that same kind of dance to happen in our relationship with him. And this is why uh, a long, long time ago, King David recognized that when he committed sin against Uriah and against Bathsheba, it was not just against them as people. It was against God. And we see this in uh, Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Hear this this morning. The writer of Hebrews and God himself wants you to know that you can have a clear conscience. Your, Your conscience can be washed clean. And that is through what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You can have a clear conscience. And Jesus is loyal to that. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning exploring this question. How are you doing with having a clear conscience? It is one thing to know about God's grace. Even earlier in our worship service this morning, we confessed our sins and we experienced an assurance of pardon. That's all beautiful. It's wonderful. and It's helpful. We do that every week. However, do you experience a clear conscience? I think there are some challenges when it comes to experiencing a clear conscience. And before I go into that, I want to say that... um, it's possible for, for us to have what might be called an underactive conscience or a conscience that is not sufficiently sensitive. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 calls this a callous conscience. A callous conscience. This is a conscience that does not convict us when we ought to feel conviction. Uh, This is a a conscience that is maybe incorrectly calibrated so that it doesn't guide us towards the truth. It doesn't guide us towards living the way that God has called us to live. And this can happen for various reasons. It can happen because um, when our conscience convicts us of sin, that can feel feel painful. And so it can be easy to, to choose not to listen to that voice and to try to silence that voice. And the more that we make that a habit, the more the voice of the conscience would become numb to it. So that is one way that we can have an underactive conscience. Or sometimes we can uh, feel the guilt that comes from our conscience, and we can almost decide intentionally on our own to try to recalibrate our conscience to sort of change our understanding of right and wrong so that Our conscience doesn't convict us in that way. And as much as that is a human predicament, predicament, there's two things to know. First, that as you sincerely follow Jesus, he is committed towards recalibrating your conscience. And that's a good thing. That's good news. 
because he knows the best ways to live and he wants to guide you on his path because his paths are good. Um, but what I also want to say is that I don't think that's the big, the biggest problem when it comes towards having a clear conscience. What I would argue is that the bigger problem is that we have an overactive conscience. The bigger problem is that we have a conscience that is over-sensitive. And when Paul talks about this, he talks often about having a weak conscience. What he's getting at is that it's possible for us to beat ourselves up and to feel guilt and to feel shame around things that are not even true, that are lies, that are, that are not appropriate for our lives. It's possible to have an overactive conscience. Now, why is that? Each of our stories are different, and so it's not fair for me to project onto you exactly why you might be experiencing an overactive Conscience. But I want to talk to you this morning about two different ways that I think we can develop an overactive or an oversensitive conscience. And one of those ways can be when we experience the leadership of Christian leaders in whatever community maybe we've been involved in in the past that have shaped or influenced our conscience in such a way wrongly that we develop an overactive conscience. And one example of this, we can talk about a lot of examples of it, but one example of this is what has been talked about frequently if you paid attention online these days, and that's purity culture. Purity culture. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's just a shorthand way that folks have talked about a movement within evangelicalism in the, in the United States in the 90s and the early 2000s, where there was a movement to try to help young people growing up in the church to have sexual purity. Now what I would argue is that that's not a bad thing generally, principally, in and of itself. Because the Bible does talk about being pure. But the problem was the means to that end. And so one of the, the major features of purity culture was the idea that uh, men or young men or boys were really unable, really unable, to have any self-control in the area of sexual purity. And so it was the responsibility of young women, it was the responsibility of girls, to dress in such a way, or to behave in such a way, to curb the behavior of the boys or the young men who could not control themselves. This is a way that Christian leaders have wrongly influenced people's conscience to have an overactive or an oversensitive conscience because it is not the responsibility of young women or girls to curb the behavior of young men or boys. And in fact, Paul uses the language, he actually in certain places in his epistles will talk about the possibility of Christian leaders wounding the conscience of others. Wounding the conscience. The way that that gets expressed is by influencing in such a way that someone develops an overactive conscience. They feel guilt or shame for something they're not responsible for. So many of us have trouble 
with hearing the good news and a grief assurance because of the harm done by Christian leaders in our past. This is sad. It grieves God. Hope that you hear that this morning. But that's not the only way. What's really sad about our broken world is that's not the only way that we experience an oversensitive or an overactive or weak conscience. This can happen just by living in a broken world. And we, we can see a picture of this by hearing these words from Dan Allender and Kathy, Kathy Lorza. Sometimes we minimize our own stories because for so many years we were told directly or indirectly that everything was fine. We were just being dramatic if we were hurt or wounded by interactions with family members. A child was designed to love her parents unconditionally and to adjust to whatever is offered, good or inappropriate. Typically, when there is a breach, either catastrophic or even subtle, a child will blame herself instead of the parent. She knows intuitively that if she blames her parents, she risks rejection and abandonment, which is a type of existential death to a child. What should be striking, I hope, about this quote this morning is that all of us have imperfect parents. All of us have imperfect parents. Even the best parents do not love their children perfectly. And so sadly, it is very easy for any one of us, perhaps all of us, to experience a tendency towards toxic shame. To grow up with the experience that because our parents don't love us per perfectly, because they can't, the side of heaven... It is so easy for us to assume that there's something wrong with us. That it's us who are deeply flawed. That it's us that are the problem. And so in this way, also, sadly, in a broken world, it is possible for us to have an overactive or an oversensitive conscience because we live in a broken world. It's easy for us to experience toxic shame that is Kurt Thompson puts it this way. He says, When in its grip, it is quite difficult for us to separate ourselves from the shame that we are feeling. Shame is not just something we intellectually think about. It's something, sadly, that can be so ingrained in our bones that we don't even know that it's dominating our existence. And so, the enemy of our souls, Satan, did you know that the name Satan means accuser or adversary? The enemy wants us to experience this kind of toxic shame. The enemy wants to produce in us an oversensitive or an overactive conscience so that we would be so steeped in shame that we would not be able to be free to experience God's love and grace and mercy. And what God, what I believe what God wants to do in our lives is to free us from this because God knows that 
some of the most dangerous people in the world to the purposes and, and, and goals of the enemy of our souls, one of the most dangerous people in the world is someone who experiences freedom from this guilt and shame and is therefore able to, at the core of their soul, feel the deep love of God. That kind of person is dangerous for God's good purposes in the world. The enemy doesn't want that for us. But this is what God is getting at in, in talking about having a clear conscience through Christ in Hebrews. This overactive con- uh, conscience can produce toxic shame. And sadly, this is cyclical. It causes more and more problems. So the more that I feel toxic shame, the more it's difficult for my conscience to function as it ought to function. It's like a snowball effect almost. So again, listen to the words of Kurt Thompson related to this. He says, A necessary element of the emotion we call guilt includes empathy. If even in primitive form. In order for me to feel guilt, I must in some way simultaneously feel the pain I have caused for another. In this sense, guilt tends to draw my attention to another. It is often accompanied by a desire to resolve the problem by being closer to him. But shame, on the other hand, separates me from others. As my awareness of what I feel is virtually consumed with my internal sensations. One way to think of this is that we can experience shame without guilt, but we are unlikely to experience guilt without shame. If this seems like a lot to take in, I understand. But the enemy of our souls wants us to have an overactive or an oversensitive conscience because he wants this toxic shame. Because he knows that the more we feel this toxic shame, the more difficult it will be for us to feel proper proper guilt in those moments when we are wrong. Because when guilt, when our conscience leads us to feelings of guilt, if we're experiencing toxic shame, it's just easy to reject the feelings of guilt because it reminds us too much of the shame. It reminds us too much of our flaws. It reminds us too much of this message that we are, t- we are so flawed, those flaws define who we are. Toxic shame interferes with the proper place of a conscience. And one way to assess, perhaps, whether or not this is something that you're experiencing is, how, does it, how are you feeling right now as you're hearing me talk about toxic shame and the place of guilt in the conscience. Would it be surprising if even this brings shame this morning? And if that's you, I just wanted to say two quick things. First, it's so important that you know that you are made in God's image and you are not an accident. And then no, no matter whatever flaws that you have, however much it's true that you are broken, you are not an accident. 
God made you intentionally. And God sent Jesus because he wants you to be his child forever. If your trust is in Jesus, you can know that you are his child. As we sang about earlier this morning, you are his child. One of the things that's also important for you to hear this morning, if you struggle with this sense of shame, shame tells you that you are uniquely flawed. Shame encourages Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.